only my second time here in your new home. It's delightful to be here. Um, I've been living, I used to live uh, right near Spirit Rock and taught at Spirit Rock for many years, running their family programs and teaching retreats and classes for children and teenagers and parents, and then spent uh, a couple years mostly on retreat in Asia, and then at IMS in Massachusetts, um, and just moved out of New York City where I've been living for the last year. Uh, most of my teaching these days has been in prisons. I work in women's prisons here in California doing meditation and other spiritual programs um, and worked for quite some time with um, teenagers incarcerated in New York City. Um, and I'm actually out here right now doing a, beginning a teacher training program, a four-year program at Spirit Rock um, of teacher training. So Gil asked if I would speak tonight. I'm delighted to be here. Um, disorganized, but delighted. <laughs> the Buddha was very fond of lists. They like to say it was organizational skills. I actually think he was obsessive-compulsive. <laughs> there were four of these and eight of those and seven of this and twelve of the other. There's one, one of the most central teachings in the, in the teachings of the Theravada, the teachings of the elders from which this tradition and this practice comes from. There's one teaching which could quite possibly be said to be most central, that he presented it as being most central. And when I say he presented it, I mean he not in terms of a person, but in terms of a mythic identity that's been created over 2,500 years. Uh, because I don't have a lot of belief that what are in the text now are what he actually said. Um, for the first three to 400 years after his death, uh, the suttas, the, the teachings of the Buddha, which numbered in the hundreds of thousands of pages, numbered in the zero of pages because it was all memorized orally. And groups of monks and nuns, groups of men and women would memorize um, what supposedly he said. His cousin and assistant Ananda had a photographic memory and had remembered everything that he had spoken over the years. And then it was passed on to groups of people. So, you know, it was like the, the folks in Palo Alto would remember the teaching of impermanence and the folks in Redwood City would remember this teaching and um, all the different folks in each community would come together once a year to, to compare to make sure that no one forgot. It was only after three to four hundred years that they started writing them down um, and it wasn't out of any um, interest in preservation. Um, in fact, the scholar who I studied uh, with for quite some time in terms of Buddhist history and psychology told me, he said, actually, any errors that are there in the texts most likely have come since they started writing it down and that passing it down orally is far more accurate. So you have a group of people that kind of come and check with each other. And, um, and when you write it down, that's where copying mistakes happen. All the same, they started writing it down. And it was because in Sri Lanka there was a group of monks and nuns that were remembering one section of the teachings and there was a great famine 
And one of the books, one of the collections of teachings was down to just one monk. Everyone else had died. And they were really worried about this guy that if, you know, if he were to get sick and die, the teachings would be gone. So they ripped off the bark of some palm tree and they quickly scrawled it out longhand. That was the beginning of the texts. And they have been adapted and you can actually see in the, in the teachings and in the story how it's grown um, and how it's become a religion and it's become a myth and it's become a, a representation of, of reality uh, as it can be seen and as it can be known. So the teaching that I'd like to speak about tonight, that the Buddha himself, according to the texts, presents as the most central to everything he spoke of, is when he said, I teach of one thing and one thing only, suffering and the path to the end of suffering. Well, for somebody who was very logical and very mathematical and very systematic with his lists, that certainly sounds like two things, not one. Suffering and the path leading to the end of suffering. Um, but in fact, I don't think it was a mistake. Uh, I think this is where the, the non-dual teachings of the Dharma come in. That in fact, suffering and the end of suffering are listed separately, thus there are two but are said to be one thing. You could say this is the um, the dualist equality of unity or the uh, the non-dualist equality of there being more than one. So you have suffering and you have non-suffering and there are two and they're one. How is that possible? And why does it even matter? Well, the teachings speak quite clearly about both the mundane reality and the ultimate reality. That things are as they seem in some ways. That we do have these bodies, we do get old, we do die. There is me sitting up here and you sitting over there, and they are different. I pinch me and you don't feel it. To deny that is to be living in some sort of delusion. There is a duality. There is a separation. At the same time, on another level perhaps, there is something that unifies. There is something which is non-dual. We know what it's like to suffer. We know what it's like to feel deep emotional and physical pain, to feel holding in our body trauma in our minds and in our hearts. We see it, how it manifests in the world, and we certainly know it in our own personal lives. I've been um, doing quite a bit of study of light and some work with the process of trauma. And uh, it's a very good teacher, Peter Levine, who teaches quite a bit about trauma and talks not just about the big traumas of, of uh, war, molestation, abuse, rape, uh, car accidents, near-death experiences. He talks about those, but also talks quite a bit of the traumas that we've all experienced in childhood that rarely are looked at. 
how many of us um, were taken by our mothers or our fathers and handed over to some strange man in a white coat with a mask who then took some mask and put it over us until we were suffocated and thought we were going to die, not knowing that it was ether. And we woke up, we had huge amounts of pain where our tonsils once were or where a tooth once was. And the trauma we experienced on that level, including the fact that it was our own parents that handed us over and seemed to think that this was a good thing. And these places of holding and these places of suffering, um, these are not at all unfamiliar to us, although some of them can be quite deep and unseen, sometimes for an entire lifetime. So then what's the possibility of the end of suffering? Well, we certainly can think of it in some grand idea of enlightenment, of ascension, when we, when we start coming to Gill's group and we actually float through the door because we don't walk anymore. Um, there might be some reality to that. There might be some possibility. Uh, but of course, it's not actually the most important part or the most important perspective on the end of suffering. It happens in moments. Awakening with a small a. Those moments of actual experiential freedom. Those moments where we no longer are caught. And a lot of it is a shift of perspective. Right now, as we sit, a good percentage of your attention is focused on my voice. Or maybe getting distracted by other sounds, you probably don't hear much of the silence, which in fact is here all the time. Not only between the words, but even within the words. As you look around, you focus on me, on each other, on the walls, on the floor. We don't take much time and actually stop and see the space which is in the room. Metaphorically, that space is there in our lives as well. And that the freedom we find is not by emptying the room. Although I've certainly spent a lot of my life trying to empty my room, um, particularly of other people and other people's problems, um, without a lot of success. And yet there's a surprising amount of room here all the time. I'm sitting in a chair because I've been having a lot of back pain from a rock climbing fall and then a car accident. And I had an MRI not so long ago. You know, they slide you into that little bubble. Yes, it's an American rite of passage, I think, in this day and age. It was an amazing experience for me to just keep focused on that little bit of space between me and the, the wall right in front of me as I was lying down. And it would have been so easy, and there were times when I would shift into claustrophobia, and I would shift into some amount of anxiety, or feeling confined. And what happened was, my mind went, the attention went to the solidness of the steel, the closeness of it, the relationship, my inability to move, and how those thoughts speeded up and went from one to the next to the next to the next. And all it took was coming back to the space. And it was only about this much space, but it was far more than enough.
the last time that I was teaching meditation at the two women's prisons just outside of Fresno in the Central Valley. Uh, they had the only women's death row in California there. And I was going with, the, with one of the chaplains there, one of the ministers, to death row um, to sit with the women. And as we went, he asked if I wanted to come back and meet with the Jewish women um, and do some teaching for them, since I also teach quite a bit in the Jewish community. And I said, sure, and I did. And the women then asked if I would come back and lead Passover seders, which is the celebration of suffering and the path leading to the end of suffering from a Jewish perspective. And as I was there with these 36 or so Jewish women at these two prisons, we went through the whole rigmarole and we brought in all the food and matzah ball soup and matzah and juice and um, chicken and we had put together books with the story specifically for the women in prison. And there's one song that you traditionally sing at Passover uh, called Dayenu. Anybody know what Dayenu means? That would be enough. Enough. You know, there's a new Jennifer Lopez movie out called Enough. And the flyers, the, the poster says, everyone has their limit. Well, this is the opposite. This is enough like it would be enough. And the way that the song goes is, is uh, it, it's, a, it's a myth, as we know, the story of Moses and the Israelites, which I actually take as being a personal myth of one person. Um, going to enlightenment and Moses is kind of the higher mind and then there's all the other parts of his mind that he has to kind of wake up along with the part that you know wants to go practice. But however you read the story, it's a, it is a story of kind of leaving slavery or some amount of uh, enslavement and finding freedom personally, collectively, culturally for the world. Um, and as the song goes, um, if we were to have left slavery but didn't make it to the Red Sea, it would be enough. If we'd made it to the Red Sea, but the Red Sea hadn't opened, it would have been enough. If the Red Sea had opened, but we didn't make it all the way across, it would have been enough. If we'd made it across, but we hadn't been able to survive in the desert and food hadn't been um, found, it would have been enough. And it goes on and on about how just this would be enough. Well, to present that song to a group of women in prison, many of them in for life sentences, Dainu, would this be enough? Was very significant. And before we sang the song, I, I started out by saying, what if this is it? What if this is it? And we can ask that in our own lives. And how quickly, for many of us, it it moves to panic, or hope, or fear, or, well, it will be enough in a few more weeks when... And that it really is a shift of perspective for these women, for us sitting there, looking on a certain level at the walls, and at the bars, and the guards, and the clothing. It was like looking at the steel in the MRI. We were trapped. We were slaves. We were suffering. This was not enough. And some of the women spoke to that when I asked the question. And we sat with it for a few minutes. And some of them said, my first reaction was absolute terror. 
But when it shifts, we were sitting in a room just about like this, about this many people. The air was just about the same. The temperature was just about the same. To just feel the body sitting in space. Yeah. This is enough. It's a very subtle but deeply profound shift of perspective. And it's the shift from suffering to the end of suffering. has been one of my gates on that path. There's nothing worse in American culture than being bored. And we go to great efforts to keep from being bored. Little would be discovered if it weren't for boredom. When patience gives out and distraction wears thin, the mind finally spins itself into stillness like a child crying herself to sleep after hours and hours and lifetimes of movies and conversations and crossword puzzles with one missing word. You sit on the window bench and watch the leaves get ready to fall. You listen to the sound of your sweater rising and falling. You pay attention to the color between you and the wall. Boredom is suffering. And yet in the space that opens up, there really is a possibility to shift. And it's not that the experience changes. It's not that we go and do anything else. It's not that meditation is going to get it so that my life is fundamentally different. From the outside, your life will look very much the same. But the willingness just to sit and look as things arise and things pass away, as you get bored, as you fall asleep in your chair or on your cushion, as you get irritated and agitated and reorganize your refrigerator and remember all the things you forgot to do today. And every time you get pulled into the steel of the MRI cage, all right, there's still space. There's always a place to return to. And that is the end of suffering, is knowing that there's always that space to return to. If boredom is the bane of American society, um, Depression is the adopted stepchild. Um, not really appreciated, but also very much loved and accepted. Um, and depression is believing that not only do I not experience that space now, but it doesn't really exist. 
Or even worse, well, it may exist for some people, but not for me. If it were not possible, I would not ask you, the Buddha said. I would not give these instructions if it were not possible. And he wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about you. I was sitting for three months in the woods of Massachusetts. Things were shifting fundamentally and very deeply, but there was also, um, as I saw, deeper and deeper suffering. It was harder and harder to keep going. I didn't want to see how difficult my life was, how difficult the world was, and the possibility that I might not find breathing space on the other side. And I went in to see my teacher, and I asked her during an interview, I said, is there some chance that I'll never find the end of this? And she said, you know, awakening, awakening is sort of like this. You can hold your arm up for a long time, but eventually, inevitably, it will come down. It really turns it on its head. I know for myself and for many of us, there's kind of a, a question of, is my life evolving more towards freedom, or am I just getting caught more and more in my neuroses and, and ego and um, the fixations of my life? And societally, is society kind of evolving to the next stage? We went from, from apes and monkeys to humans. Are we, are we going to evolve to the next stage? And maybe it'll be enlightened beings. Maybe the next species is, is all Buddhas. Or are we descending into open madness, building nuclear weapons and hunger and poverty and, um, and destroying the environment? One could really say that personal evolution is sort of a, just a spiritual evolution. It's just another manifestation of societal evolution. You can see it in the family. Uh, have I you know, improved on my parents who improved on their parents? Am I doing better than my great-grandparents? Or are things just getting worse and worse? And my grandparents, at least they stayed married, right? It's hard to know. One of the kind of the great philosophical, uh, spiritual questions is, is a baby fully enlightened? Is a baby fully awake? Or are they absolutely blank? So they come in with a blank slate. One school of Buddhist thought, and I'll um, do a disclaimer, which is it happens to be the school that I at least presently belong to in terms of belief, would say that a child comes in with all the makings for awakening except for the knowing. Now, what I mean by that is this. The Buddha said that there's oneness between suffering and, and the end of suffering. They're actually one and the same. Because suffering and the end of suffering both are essentially empty. There is no substantive uh, identity 
either in our suffering or in the end of our suffering. They're both essentially empty. Now, empty is a word that gets thrown around a lot. What does empty mean? In New York, there's a graffiti artist, really wonderful guy that writes these very profound things on sidewalks and also just chalk drawings. And two or three times I've shown up on his chalk drawings just a few minutes after he finished them. The dust is still right there. And I, I kept coming close to meeting him and never actually got to see him. But one of them was, what is it about emptiness that seems to take up so much space? He's talking about a different emptiness, the feeling of emptiness, of despair, of depression. The emptiness that we talk about in the Buddhist context, in the context of both suffering and the end of suffering, are empty. is pointing to the conceptual quality of our suffering and the end of suffering. If, for example, we were to draw a line down the room right about here, and we were to say everybody on this side is A and everybody on this side is B, look at the people in your group, A and B. Just kind of look around so you kind of get a sense of who's on your side. In fact, let's actually call this side us and this side them. Okay? Now look around and see who's us and see who's them. Now look across that line and yeah, look at look at them and look at us. Okay. Now we created two groups. We created an identity and a name. And yet nothing substantively changed in the room. It was a verbal agreement. It was something that we created in our minds, but nothing actually changed. The groupings, the names, the emotions that went along with it were all essentially empty. Now that's just a metaphor, but on a similar level, on a, in a similar manner, everything is essentially empty. The essential nature of things is empty. The quality of emptiness is knowing. The essential nature of things is empty. The quality of emptiness is knowing. The essence of knowing is emptiness. Knowing is the essence of emptiness. The empty nature of things naturally knows itself. It's naturally in a state of knowing. It's also naturally empty. And yet, for some strange reason, we need to evolve through this middle age of neurosis, of ego, in order to electrify the circuit in order to actually know things as they are. A baby comes into this world with essential nature, but without any knowing. And it's only in actually building up our ego, it's only in fact getting engaged in the world, that we're able to then deconstruct and actually see things as they truly are. The ego is the only thing that's developed in this world with the sole purpose of destroying itself. so that we can be free.
I'm going to tell you a little story. This is actually one that I, I use with the women in prison quite a bit. Um, most of the women, when I'm doing the Jewish group, they're, they're Jewish, but otherwise when I do the Vipassana, they're mostly uh, Christian, about a third Caucasian, a third African American, and a, and a third Latina. Um, so I use a lot of stories from the Old Testament and from the New Testament, a lot of stories that they're more familiar with um, to teach Buddhist psychology and to teach anger management, stress reduction. Since we're talking about uh, Dayenu and Passover, I figure I'll tell you the story of Moses um, from a different perspective. Moses was a very kind of uh, anti-hero. He had no um, aspirations. And as a myth, it's very interesting because it's the exact opposite from most myths. He's not the peasant boy who realizes he's a prince or Harry Potter who realizes he's a wizard. Moses is a prince who realizes he's a slave. That his realization of his true essence is realizing he's actually a slave. He's actually one of the peasants. He's not who he thought he was. And so he becomes a convict. In a moment of, of self-righteous indignation and rage, he kills a man and gets sent out. And how often that happens, that the ones that descend are the ones that are able to ascend. I would say more people in California have reached deep awakening in prison than in meditation groups. Don't take that as a directive. <laughs> so Moses ends up in the desert. How familiar that sounds, the desert. What's that, our 30s, 40s, and 50s? The desert of our existence feeling lost and dry, barren. And he returns. He returns to uh, awaken his own mind, one could say. Lead the people. The Buddha did both. Moses did both. So he talks them into leaving and they get to the Red Sea. And of course, as soon as we get out, as soon as we, as soon as we bring our attention to what's here. As soon as we sit down, something shows up. For the Buddha under the tree, it was Mara. For us, when we sit down, it's wherever our mind has the habit to go and get distracted. For Moses, it was he hit the Red Sea. And he didn't know what to do. It didn't help as Aunt Sadie was next to him saying, a map, Moses, you should have brought a map. <laughs> At the rate we're going, we'll be wandering for 20 years. Little did she know. There was actually, there was an old wise woman who was standing next to Moses named Nakshan. And she pushes by him because she knows how it has to happen. She begins to walk into the water, into the Red Sea. She walks in up to her knees and she looks up and she says, here I am. And she walks a little further up to her waist and she says, here I am. She walks a little further and she gets up to her chin. She says, here I am. And then she takes another step in. And it was only when she stepped in above her nose that the water actually split and there was dry land. This is the element of faith. The teachings say we need both faith and wisdom. And we're usually stronger on one and weaker on the other. And what Moses had was the wisdom. What he didn't have was the faith. And Nachshon stepped forward 
and went in with faith. The, the Pali word that's usually translated as faith is sada. But the more accurate translation is the heart's movement forward into the darkness of the unknown. That's very much what it's like. The heart's movement forward into the darkness of the unknown. It's not that we know what it's going to be like or what's going to happen. It's a quality that seems to generally be more easily embodied for women than for men. In Burma, they say the reason why more women become enlightened in monasteries than men is that it's easier to develop the wisdom characteristic than it is to develop the faith characteristic. And women characteristically have more faith by nature. So the Red Sea splits and they make it to the other side. And they wander through the desert and it's hot and it's dry. And they don't have any food and they don't have any water and they don't have any shoes. And there's sand as far as you can see, but at least it's flat. Well, there's 600,000 people falling behind Moses and he comes around the corner and boom, suddenly there's a mountain in the way. Mount Sinai. And he stops and everybody else stops. And the, you know, the whole line kind of stops. They say, Mo, why'd you stop? And there's this huge mountain in the way and it wasn't supposed to be there and it doesn't help as Aunt Sadie's next to him again saying, a dentist, Moses, I told you, you should have been a dentist. <laughs> and what is he going to do? What do we do when we run into a problem in our lives? Well, there were 600,000 people. They were Jewish, so half of them were complainers. And half of them wanted to go back. Said, you know what? Slavery is better than this. And how familiar that is. You know, that relationship, maybe it wasn't so bad. You know, I could probably just start smoking again some. Or we laugh at it, but we all have those patterns of the things that we'll go back to. That it's just easier to sit on the couch again. Or to turn the television back on. Or to not talk about it because it just seems to bring up too much stuff to talk about it. Better to kind of recede into the cold silence of the relationship. And half of us wants to go back. At least it was familiar. You know, we wonder why the abused doesn't leave the abuser. It's very safe in a certain way. It's even comforting in a certain way. Then of the other half, some of them were there rolling up their sleeves and pulling out their shovels and saying, not to worry. We'll dig Mount Sinai out of the way and we'll be on our way by midnight. Don't worry, we'll take care of this problem. There's part of us that wants to fix it, that wants to get the problem out of the way. Which is particularly annoying when they think you are the problem right in their way. And trying to, to move you aside. We've all had that experience, particularly in work settings. Then there were those that wanted to go around the mountain the slippery side of us that kind of wants to just sort of see if we can slide right around it, go around its back. And then my personal favorite, you just pretend the mountain's not there, you sit down, and you say, you know, this is a very comfortable place to live. Set up a lemonade shop. If life gives you lemons, make lemonade and sell it right here, right there, you know. Who says we needed to get anywhere? Maybe this is, where we're, maybe this is a sign that this is where we're supposed to be living in the desert. But of course, Moses didn't do any of those things. He ascended the moment. He climbed step by step. 
He just walked. He just sat. He just breathed. He gets to the top of the mountain. He sits there for an interminable amount of time, 40 days and 40 nights, no food, no water, like Jesus in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. Buddha for, well, we don't really know how long he sat. It's disputed. But there's something about this interminable length of time that we have to get to the place where we actually die in the process, where we give up, where we say, yes, I surrender. And that's when the space opens up between us and the steel of the MRI. Moses was thinking it was about getting to the land of milk and honey. But when did his awakening experience happen? It happened right there, in the middle of the problem. And how often we put it off. Oh, well, you know, I'll get on with my spiritual practice when the kids move, or when the... Or it's just when this gets out of the way, then I'll be able to go back to... It's like we're putting all of our Mount Sinai's aside. We're taking all these opportunities and seeing them as obstacles. And this again is where the Buddha saw one when others would see two. Suffering, in fact, is the root itself to the end of suffering. One cannot reach the end of suffering without going through the suffering. And I don't just mean going through, meaning like you've got to tough it out and experience it. Kuan Yin, the Chinese archetype goddess of compassion. The winds of emptiness, no. The winds of suffering blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? The winds of change and suffering blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? We get so exhausted trying to stop the wind. What's your experience of this? Thoughts or questions or comments? Again? And you talked about Buddhism and the possibility, you know, of practice. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. How do you really know one? Mm-hmm. There's somebody who's going to a car accident and their brain's just fried in a certain way and they can never, mm-hmm. never experience this. Mm-hmm. That's a very good question. How do you know that it's really open to everybody? The first thought that comes to mind 
Actually, another, there's another line from one of the suttas where the Buddha says, uh, if you hear after my death that somebody says, the Buddha taught this, do not believe it. If you hear a disciple of mine saying, this is the word of truth, do not believe it. If you hear it while I'm still alive from my very mouth, do not believe it. But listen and hear these things with an open mind and an open heart and see how they relate to your own experience. Take them to heart and practice them and see if they ring true, so to speak. Don't believe it just because I said it. So while an element of faith is very important and skeptical doubt can rob us of any possibility of forward progress by constantly sort of stopping us or sending us off on a side tangent or turning us back around, can be very, very destructive. And faith is very important to be willing to go into the darkness of the unknown. It isn't a blind faith and it's something one really needs to discover for oneself. Um, to have the faith and the courage and the trust to take the steps and see what unfolds, to see if it rings true. For me, one of the ways that's been very inspiring has been through reading things that definitely ring true and hearing talks that definitely ring true. It's also been through meeting people who have really inspired me who I don't see them as being perfect. And in fact, if I saw them as being perfect, then I would have thought, well, it can work for them, but not for me. But meeting people who I could see they were still quite imperfect, um, and yet seemed to have found a lot of clarity and a lot of peace of mind, and both seemed happier than I was, but also seemed to act in much better ways, didn't seem to be nearly as uh, motivated or driven by uh, their small mind or by the limitations of their mind. And when I see that in people, it really inspires me to think, okay, if it can work for them, then it's at least a worthy path. Whether it happens for me, whether my arm comes down in this lifetime, whether my arm goes from here to here, who knows. But it gives me some faith to carry on. And a bit, just the last thing I'll say, it's a very good question. When I talked at the beginning about, about the end of suffering, not with a capital A of awakening, but with a lowercase a, with moment-to-moment -moment freedom, that we all have experienced. That's something, that's a, that's a taste that we have. It's seeing a glimpse of the blue sky between the clouds, and we know it to be true, and then maybe it's stretching the hole in the clouds, or it's having more holes, but it's not waiting for some huge aha moment and thinking, okay, it happened. No, it didn't happen. It hasn't happened for me, but it happened for her. That's not what it's about. And even the great saints, even the awakened ones, when they talk about it, they don't, they don't say, wow, who would have thought, oh my God, you got to see this. This is amazing. That's not what they do. They say, ah, Yes, of course. It's just this. It's very subtle. It's not so far away. It's not that we see anything different. 
but that we see the view itself. We see the translucence in the space between us. We see the act of seeing. None of which is out of the realm of possibility right here and right now. We don't have to go off to Asia for six years. We don't have to give up our spouse and our money and our cars. I think there's, there, there can be powerful consequences of doing that. I'm not discounting that. Um, both positive and also, of course, difficult consequences. There is a, a clear seeing that is possible to certainly to everyone in this room. But it doesn't... For 99.9% .9 of the people, it doesn't find you. It's actually a piece of the Moses story that I skipped, which is what sent him back, is he saw the burning bush, so to speak. My reading of that is, he heard the whisper that's whispering all the time behind the wind. He heard the voice that's always there, whether you call it the one who knows, which is what Ajahn Chah calls it, the inner voice, which is what Western psychology calls it, whether you call it the voice of God, which is what Judeo-Christianity calls it, it doesn't really matter. The voice is always there. He was able to hear it. The Buddha heard it. We've heard it at times. And it's listening more and more and letting it guide us more and more. Why do you ask that question? Um, the first example is being in the desert and how there's a surrender, and I experienced that on retreat of <laughs> in the desert. But you know, in my day to day life, when there's something, you know, it's just really hard. Um, and I've experienced it there too in the past, but it's like now I, I can't make mm. it happen. You know, and I'm just mm. like, how do you do that? Is there a specific situation? you're thinking of? Is there a specific situation you're thinking of? Yeah. Just give me a general say, work, interpersonal... Um, interpersonal family members. Uh -huh. okay. Terminal, basically. Mm. My partner and I, how we deal with this is very mm. different. Terminal illness. Mm. I'm sorry. Mm. I think it was very helpful that you recognized that you have been able to do this at times, um, and that that shift is possible. And that, no, I, that that's an important piece to look at. That that you collect, that you together can't do it, or that you feel like you're doing it, but you're being held back. There's a lot of fear in surrendering to the mountain, in surrendering to our suffering. It's very risky. I mean, this is the faith. I mean, who in their right mind would let their heart go into the dark unknown? That's crazy. Your heart's going to get chopped up if you, if you let it do that. That's what fear says. It can also be extremely scary to surrender in relationship. 
and you put the two of them together and it can either become a support, the relationship can either become a support to that or the suffering can actually be a separator. Um, and the two pieces of that that I just want to point out again is that what we feel like we can take the risk and face alone becomes exponentially uh, higher stakes in relationship. Because to really show up for death and dying um, means to really show up with the person that you're there with. That brings up a whole nother, uh, it's like opening a whole nother barrel of wonderful things and really difficult things and deep wounds and traumas on both sides. And when you have two people in the way that they can both support each other and then trigger each other. Um, so I, I, I think it can, um, it's quite understandable and natural that it's hard for these two pieces to kind of come together, the dealing with family suffering and then how it seems to um, be aggravated by, by the relationship. One of the ways that I've kind of held it in my own mind and in my own relationship that I'll put it out there and see if it's helpful and maybe it's absolutely obvious and you think this is, um, you know, I spent my time listening to this. Uh, you can tell me afterwards because uh, I've, I've never suggested this to anyone before. But there's a way in which in my experience that suffering in any type of relationship, a particularly primary relationship, um, can become very much like a wedge where the suffering is between you and the other person. And the other person is the cause of the suffering, is getting in the way of you resolving the suffering, you're the cause of their suffering, um, and the suffering is actually what's between the two of you. And I, my experience of it is very much like a wedge that just sort of starts to work its way deeper and deeper and deeper in. And you feel them moving further apart and it must be their fault and they feel threatened and you're seeing each other through the suffering. If that wedge can be remolded into a giant rubber band and you actually stretch it around the two of you where, or you put it next to the two of you and the two of you are actually relating to the suffering Again, it's the shift of perspective. It's not about getting rid of the suffering. There's no less mass of suffering. But no longer is it, oh my God, it's between us. Oh my God, it's your fault. Oh my God, it's my fault. It's, oh, we are actually suffering together. And just the last thing I'd say is, in, in that metaphor, I don't focus on fixing it. Um, but that there's a way in which it really can bring us together. Um, I don't know if that was helpful at all. Yeah. 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 Um, do you feel like from your side that you're able to not let the suffering get between you and the significant other? No, but I feel like I'm willing to meet it and see it. 
You've lost what? I think just her philosophy about life and suffering is rather wrong. Uh-huh. And that's what I let get in my way. You know, there is the tendency to blame. Okay, here's the last trick I'll suggest. You pick up the rug and you see the little girl under the rug. Um, that when I get caught, again, I'm, I'm mostly going on personal experience here, but when I get caught, I'm usually caught in the identity that I have of the adult. And if there's a way to actually see the other person, even if they keep pulling the same old stuff again and again, we really have very little ability in changing them. But we don't have to let it overwhelm us. Um, and our ability to change other people is very, very small. Um, our ability to see the other people as little kids who are really suffering and are wounded is enormous. And the compassion that comes from that and the irony is the only thing that ever seems to change people is for them to feel a huge amount of compassion and love. Yeah, good luck. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you.